Just imagine the scenario. It is 8 a.m. on a busy Monday morning. Your day begins with a commute through the dense traffic that makes up the corridors of the Metroplex. Your eyes glance at the numbers displayed on your Apple Watch. Your daily steps are too few, your heart rate too high, and your progress too slow. Why does it always seem like this drive to work is getting longer and longer? Commanding Siri to change the channel on your XM device, your eyes glance upward and to the right, noticing a catchy ad displayed on an oversized digital billboard that seems to just hover in thin air. What your eyes do not see is how the billboard is managed to select and display an ad that marketers know will appeal to approximately 64.87% of those driving that morning. At work is the science of algorithms. Unbeknownst to passers-by, the complex billboard before them has instantaneously pinged phones located in the almost 1,500 cars within 200 meters of its approach. Utilizing a proprietary architecture developed by Amazon's web services, the AI device capable of deep learning has determined which of the over 2,000 ads stored in its database most appeals to passengers within its immediate context. Those experiencing the billboard perceive its content to be random. Ask, and a commuter might suggest that the image of the product before them that day just happened to be displayed. No doubt, it's part of an ongoing loop of random products or services the billboard cycles through each hour. Nothing, however, could be further from the truth. Far from random, algorithmic learning has made marketing intensely effective as individuals are targeted to receive ad content based upon known preferences and predictive behavior. Now, what you're experiencing on this average Monday morning is anything but average. What you are experiencing is the power of information, which, by the way, is what makes me excited to dig into our topic today on God-sized living. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever thought at a level more than surface depot about the relationship between information and wisdom. So I think we all know that we're living in the information era. No doubt about that. Uh, most recent data tells us that the amount of information generated annually has grown year over year since 2010. In fact, it's estimated that 90% of the world's data was generated within the last two years. In the space of 13 years, this figure has increased by an estimated 60 times from just two zettabytes in 2010 to today. Today, our best estimates suggest that at least 2.5 quintillion bytes of data are produced every day. That's 2.5 followed by a staggering 18 zeros. Whew, that is a lot of information. But let me ask this. At what rate is wisdom growing in our world today? Or is it? In today's podcast, is my goal based upon Daniel chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter 12, to explore a couple of fundamental questions. I want to begin with information. I don't know about you, but I find myself asking all kinds of questions about this topic today. I, I think we, know quantitatively that the percentage of data being generated each day continues to grow exponentially without sight of an end to such growth. But how is it being used? Is there a sense in which 
fewer and fewer entities are distributing information in ways that might not be good for us as human beings. What's the role of information supposed to be in our lives? Then Daniel, is it possible that a prophet that lived thousands of years ago could actually speak into our information-rich world today? And if so, what does he have to say? Finally, wisdom. What is the relationship of wisdom to information? And why does it matter? Today, let's jump into an old story, the narrative of Daniel, that I believe has a lot to say to our increasingly new world. Now, I'll, I'll tell you that maybe one of the things that got me thinking about this topic is a book titled Automate This, How Algorithms Came to Rule Our World. is written by Christopher Steiner. I bought the book a long time ago. This is a 2012 title, but I, I will tell you that its content has, over the years, been somewhat prophetic. Steiner relates that the impetus for his book occurred in May of 2010, when in a single morning, Wall Street experienced one of the worst drops in its histories. By day's end, on May 6, 2010, the market fell by almost 1,000 points, equating to $1 trillion of vanished market value. What was the cause of the drop? Trading bots, a nice word for algorithms. The event, of course, caused Steiner to ask the question, if a single glitch in an algorithm can cause so much damage in a matter of hours, where else is humanity vulnerable or stated differently? Are algorithms something good for us or are they a potential threat? The answer, as most of us are aware, is both. There's a sense in which algorithms have indeed made our world a little bit easier. On a personal level, I become a bit fond of our home assistant, Alexa. She, as we typically refer to the device, has made keeping a shopping list or discovering sports scores or weather facts quite convenient. In fact, were a person to make a list of all the ways that algorithms make life a bit easier, the list would no doubt be quite long. There are algorithms that make grocery shopping a simple task of pushing a few buttons, pulling up to a warehouse, and having someone else load groceries into your car. You never step into the store. Algorithms help you navigate. Think about where many of us would be without the algorithmically driven GPS devices that we carry with us. In one word, lost. I know I would be. Algorithms make access to music instantaneous. In my case, all I have to do is ask Alexa to play my curated playlist on Spotify and I'm off and running. Not to mention, it's predictive capability and ability that allows the machine to recommend music that best fits my tastes and interests. Oh, and all of my streaming devices, they do the same. And finally, where would most of us be apart from the algorithms that power sites like Google or Facebook or YouTube? I don't know about you, but when I want to fix something, buy something, or cook something, all I have to do is type or speak a prompt, and then presto, in front of me are a myriad of op options or how-to videos. Indeed, there's a very real sense in which all of us, since 2012, when Steiner wrote his book, have become more and more dependent on, well, algorithms. That said, I think we also know that algorithms have a dark side. Two names that come to my mind are Stephen Hawking and Francis Haugen. 
You may recognize Stephen Hawking, now deceased, as the brilliant theoretical physicist and cosmologist. As a professor and author, Hawking penned one of my all-time favorite books, A Brief History of Time, which, by the way, if you've never read, do yourself a favor, check it out. Toward the end of Hawking's life, he was asked about the bourgeoning field of AI. At the time, 2018, AI was in the process of moving from the era of machine learning in which algorithms processed inputs through artificial neural networks programmed by humans, hands, towards a form of processing now in vogue that allows machines, computers, to self-learn apart from the need of human input. What Hawking said has always stuck with me. Speaking at the Web Summit held in Portugal, Spain, just one year prior to his death, he said, quote, the emergence of artificial intelligence, AI, could be the worst event in the history of our civilization unless society finds a way to control its development. Hmm. Speaking to the dark side of deep learning machines, Frances Haugen echoed Hawking's thoughts in her testimony regarding the algorithmic practices employed at Facebook Inc., now Meta. You might recognize Haugen as the whistleblower who gave testimony to the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. What Haugen saw behind the curtains of Facebook scared her literally. Based not upon hearsay, but actual insider experience, Haugen contends in her book, The Power of One, that algorithms developed within Facebook created a social environment, quote, not safe for children, end quote. I've always found it fascinating that most coders and people that work in places like Facebook or now Meta say, I would not let my kids near social media with a 10-foot pole. Interesting. Whatever one's opinion on all things algorithm, no one can walk away from the honest conversation without recognizing that data or information might be neutral. However, more and more we recognize that in the case of our bot-driven world, it is who is at the helm of information that is in no way neutral, which connects us to this old narrative found in the book of Daniel chapter 12, where two words jump off of Daniel's narrative pages. The words are information and wisdom. And immediately, we as readers of Daniel's text recognize that the two are not the same. Information and wisdom. Wisdom and information. My question is, how do the two relate? So let's remember where we are in the book. By the time we reach chapter 12 of Daniel, we are, number one, at the end of Daniel's life, and number two, being taken to the end of time. And yes, these two things do coincide. Over the last weeks, we've recognized that Daniel, at the end of his life, has become somewhat downcast. On the positive side, he has watched God orchestrate the release of Israel from their bondage to Babylon. With Cyrus's decree, Israel is not only free to return to Jerusalem, but the king of Persia himself has made provisions for Israel. The problem, there is hesitation on Israel's part. And it is this hesitation that causes Daniel to ponder, what will it take to bring Israel out of bondage? Of course, as we've noted, the same can be said for most of us listening to this podcast. How many times do we just stay stuck 
in the messes that we make in our life. Not, not because God has not acted to set us free. He has. But because we become comfortable with our messes. I have to say, been there, done that. So how does God respond to Daniel's downcast spirit? I believe that's what makes chapter 12 so valuable. It's the answer to that question. Namely, God responds by taking Daniel to the very end of time. He shows him what the last days will look like as a way of saying, Daniel, I want you to see this, that down to the very last day of history, I'm sovereign. I am God. There's not one thing that will happen on planet Earth that will ever surprise me. And in fact, in the end, I want you to see that I will use all of it to accomplish my will, including, if I might add this today, man's pursuit of information. I want to do two things here. I want to begin by reading a verse from Daniel 12. Then I want to spend just a minute or two contextualizing what I'm going to read before coming back to Daniel's text. So why don't we begin with Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Allow me to read it. I'll percuss these words with a simple observation. I want you to recognize that these words are being spoken to Daniel by pre-incarnate Jesus. He's given to Daniel the words that make up this book. And now he comes to the end. So he speaks these words. Lord, we just ask that you would indeed uh, give us your wisdom as we read these words. He writes, quote, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Now listen to this. Many shall run to and fro, and information slash knowledge shall increase. Okay. Let's make a couple of notes here. First, as Jesus reaches the end of the world, in the word that he will share with mankind through Daniel, he gives to Daniel a specific charge. Quote, shut up the words and seal the book. End quote. So, so what does that mean? Does it mean that no one is supposed to have these words? Shut them up and seal them, as in keep them from being read or seen by men who will live long after Daniel is gone? Well, no. That's not what it means, or we would not be reading these words today. So what does it mean? What is Jesus asking Daniel to do? Shut up the words and seal this book. So let's start with the first part. The words, or the imperative, shut up the words. In Hebrew, the word that's used here is the verb satam. And what I love about the word is the picture that it forms. Literally, the verb could be translated, ready for this, put a stopper in it. Think here of a, a water bottle or a wine bottle. To stop the bottle up, one would place a stopper in its mouth. That would do two things. It wouldn't allow anything into the bottle. No contaminants. Number two, it would not allow anything to come out of the bottle until such a time as the stopper would be removed. It's a great word picture of what Jesus is saying to Daniel. Daniel, I'm done speaking now. Put a stopper in this word so that nothing is added to it. Preserve it and keep it whole as I spoke it. This, of course, is similar to the last words in the Bible that place a curse upon any that would either remove or add to the whole of God's living word to mankind. It is God saying, this is my word to man. Don't mess with it. Don't change it. Don't water it down. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Let my word be my word. It's a relevant thought in our world today, in this day and age, where so many people, including churches, practice 
quote-unquote progressive revelation or said simply an approach to the Bible that does change its meaning to fit the culture in which the word finds itself. I think Jesus would say to many churches in Europe and America and even globally, stop, put a stopper in it. This is my word, don't mess with it. And then Jesus adds a second imperative, seal it up. Daniel, shut up the words and seal it up. So what does that mean? Uh, here the word is not satam, but hatam, hatam. Uh, I want you to think about what that word means. I graduated from high school in the bicentennial year of 1976, and I know, I know what that makes me old, <laughs> but don't miss the point. In 1976, one thing that became popular were time capsules. Time capsules are where individuals or organizations or entities would create a capsule intended to hold content that would be buried only to be unburied at a designated time. Our high school did it. We created a capsule into which we placed a number of cultural artifacts that told a story about what it meant to live in America in the mid-70s and to go to high school. I remember there were a number of songs placed into the capsule. There were clothing articles, newspaper articles, sports scores. The idea was simple. An invitation was created to invite people living 100 years from the day that we buried the capsule to dig it up, open it up, and marvel at how wonderful and sophisticated we were in the 1970s, or not. Can you imagine people years from now digging that capsule up, listening to The Carpenters or Barry Manilow? By the way, if you don't know those names, Google them. Or what about bell-bottom jeans? Really? People wore those? Although someone did tell me that they're making a comeback even today. So if you're following what I'm saying... I'm suggesting that when pre-incarnate Jesus calls upon Daniel to seal up the words of this book, or we might say the prophecies of this book, this is Jesus' way of saying, Daniel, I've designated a time in history when these prophecies, the ones I've given you, in particular those that take you to the end times, will begin to be unsealed. They will begin to actually occur. Now, Here's what I want you to recognize. When you read the book of Revelation, chapter 5, how does it begin? I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a minute. Revelation, chapter 5, how does it begin? Do you remember? I'm going to give you a clue. Corresponding to the book of Daniel, the Revelation takes us to the end of time. It takes us to the end time where we meet with, guess what? A book that has been sealed. Just listen to these words, Revelation 5, 1, quote, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, the one that controls history, God himself, a book. A book. And written within and on the back, the book was sealed with seven seals. Hmm. No, keep on reading. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? You know why the angel is asking the question? Because the revelation takes us to the end time, the time that we're living in right now, and suggests that it's in these last times that what was sealed at the time of Daniel is now being opened. That is, the behavior that Daniel has shown in chapter 12, the behavior that was then sealed up, is right now being actually lived out on planet Earth. So you have to ask the question, 
What is it that gets unsealed? What behavior does Daniel point us to? Which, of course, takes us back to the verse that we read earlier in Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. I'm going to read it again. Many shall run to and fro, and information slash knowledge shall increase. So let me ask you this. Do these words not describe exactly the time that we're living in today? Are we not living in a time where men believe that he with the best information wins? We chase it. Information. To and fro. We run from one idea to the next, believing that the next big thing will bring us status, will make us rich, will move our country forward to the head of the pack. We're living in a time where information is the king that many bow down to. I'm not going to try to create an exhaustive list, but follow me on this. Men shall run to and fro, and information shall increase. And so it is that when COVID struck, a medical technology employing mRNA, the next big thing in medicine, was set free, and information increased. Men shall run to and fro, and information shall increase. And so it is that Lawrence Livermore conducted the first known successful gain of energy utilizing cold fusion, and information increased. Men shall run to and fro, seeking information. It just so happens that the computer industry successfully launched a technology utilizing artificial neural networks or nodes, making deep learning possible for machines, and information increased. It just so happens that the technology of AI became accessible to ordinary people through platforms such as ChatGPT or Microsoft Bing, and information increased. Just so happens that the Genome Project reached a 92% completion rate, opening up a so-called infinity of doors to medical and biological sciences, and information increased. And I could go on and on. I won't, because I think you get the point. We do not have to look far to notice that the words spoken by pre-incarnate Jesus to Daniel thousands of years ago provide an accurate account of the very times that we're living in today. There's never been such an information-rich time as the one that we're living in. The question is, where is wisdom? As much as information has increased, has wisdom kept in step? And it's here the only answer has to be a resounding no. In fact, the adverse is true. That as much as information and access to it has increased in our time, wisdom has decreased. While information increases, wisdom recedes. Why do, why do I say that? So think about the definition. I'm aware that where I define wisdom today based on a contemporary understanding thereof, my definition might sound like this. Quote, wisdom is the ability to discern inner qualities and relationships. It is insight, good sense, and judgment, end quote. That's the way Webster defines the word. In other words, from a purely secular point of view, wisdom is the ability one has to discover insights and execute good judgment. But is that how the Bible understands the word? I think we know. It's not. I've always loved the fact that the biblical book of Proverbs offers insight into what the Bible means when it speaks to wisdom. Solomon writes, Proverbs chapter 1, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voices at the head of the noisy streets. She cries out at the entrance of the city gates. She speaks. Do you remember these words from the book of Proverbs? You find them at the beginning, chapter one, where we come to learn that wisdom is not a thing. It's not a thing. It's not a skill. No. At the highest level, wisdom understood biblically is first a someone, a someone named Jesus Christ. 
said simply, Jesus is our wisdom. And to live in him and through him is to have wisdom. I believe this is why Jesus speaks the words that he does to Daniel here in chapter 12. His words are contrastive. Having told Daniel that in the end times men will seek out information and knowledge, he contrastively points to those who in the last times will live in him. Remember his words, quote, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Think about what those words mean. While men in the last time set their sights and their hearts on information, on getting ahead, on making their mark in the world, on winning, sometimes at all costs, those who live in Jesus set their hearts on something else, namely the eternities of those who are apart from Jesus. Wisdom is what focuses Jesus' followers not on chasing after things of this world, but on joining the Spirit of God as he chases the hearts of those who do not know him as Savior. It is this sense of the word that has always caused me to say that while information is valuable, unless the wisdom of God guides it, it will lead men to chase that which is transitory and passing. Oppositely, when wisdom guides our way, it does so like a compass pointing due north. Wisdom points everything that we know and the essence of who we are in one direction. It points us toward eternity. It asks the only question that in the end will matter. Do you know wisdom? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord? Today, I want to close with a couple of questions. So number one, what are some of the ways that you see men running to and fro, chasing information today? Where do you see that happening? How do you see that happening in our world? Number two, more important question. In what ways does this, does this impact your children or your grandchildren? And I think about this all the time. My, my grandkids are growing up in information-rich America, but do they know wisdom? Number three, how do we elevate the place of wisdom in the lives of our children and grandchildren today? What, what role should our families play in that? How might the church better partner with families towards this end? I'll leave you with these questions today. I always thank you for joining me on God Says Living. Every morning, I want you to know I begin early. I do. And I want you to know you, are, you and your families are some of the first that I place in my prayers. I want to pray for you. And I'm going to ask you for the same. Will you pray for me? Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we celebrate Labor Day, so we'll be off, but back the week after. So until then, have a God-sized week.